I would ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Uh, we'll be continuing our study of the gospel according to Luke. Uh, and this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 38. Luke 22, 24 to 38. Luke 22, 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag, bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray that as we approach this passage of Scripture, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, it will help us to see that we are not great. Help us to see that we have nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to you. Help us, I pray, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us all to have humility before Christ and before each other. Lord, do that work within us, I pray, for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in seminary, one of the professors told us about a church where he was be con being considered for a pastoral position. And he told us that, that after the interview at the church, one of the men gave him a tour of the church. And he was a little bit surprised when the tour of the church included a tour of the janitor's closet. Then his guide explained that as part of his duties, he'd be required to clean the church. 
And the professor told us that he was, he was shocked and that he declined the position. And as he explained the situation to us in class, he said he did not want to be part of a church where they didn't understand that the primary ministry of a pastor is to be in the word and prayer. Now that's true. But I can't help but wonder if as part of that tour, they wanted to see what his attitude would be towards humble service. They wanted to see whether he'd be willing to serve in any capacity. In John 13, John's account of, of the Passover meal, Jesus ate with his disciples on the night of his, his betrayal. The same thing is taking place as we look in Luke 22. But in John's account, Jesus arose from the table, laid aside his outer garments, put a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. One by one, he knelt down at the disciples' feet. Of those, these 12 men, he humbly served them. He even did this for Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. Now, you need to understand that in that culture, with its dusty, dirty roads and, and people not wearing clothes-in shoes but only sandals, that, that people's feet would, would get dirty, very dirty. And it was customary that a, a servant, often a slave, would be asked to wash the feet of the guests. And so at this table, at the Lord's Supper, the disciples should have done that for each other, let alone for Jesus Christ. But they were too self-centered. And so Jesus did. He explained that as he, their teacher and Lord, washed their feet, so they also ought to wash one another's feet. Have you ever had someone wash your feet? Now, of course, when you were a child, when you were a baby, your parents washed your feet then. But, but as an adult, have you ever had someone humbly wash your feet? Now, some churches actually even make this a, a third ordinance in addition to baptism and the Lord's Supper. I, I wouldn't go that far with it, but there is really something humbling about having someone wash your feet. Several years ago, I was on a, a missions trip to Papua New Guinea. And when the team arrived at the village, we were met by people in, in traditional clothing who, who sang to us. It was, it, it was one of the most humbling things I've ever experienced. However, it didn't compare to what came next. We sat down in front of the hut that was going to be our, our home for our time there, and, and several of the men in the village bowed in front of us and proceeded to remove our shoes and socks and wash our feet. Now, we've been in transit for a day and a half with five flights and over 17,000 kilometers. I would not have wanted to be that close to my feet. But these men did that for us. It was, was such a, a tender display of, of humble service that, that tears came to my eyes. It, it still, I feel, still feel tears welling up in my eyes as I think about it to this day. In our passage this morning, we're going to see the opposite kind of behavior from the disciples as they gathered together to celebrate 
the Passover with Jesus one last time before his crucifixion. There were 13 people at that table and only one of them humbly served. Jesus has just told his disciples that that one of them will betray him and they began to question each other saying, say, who's going to do it? And in John we see that they said, is it I? But immediately it degenerated into an argument among them as to which one of them would be the greatest. And so Jesus admonishes them to humble themselves and warns them of what's coming. But to a man, they show shocking self-reliance and misunderstanding about what is to take place in, the, in, the, in their own lives and also in the life of the Lord. As we consider this passage, we, we might be tempted to judge the apostles for their behavior, but in so doing, we're actually revealing the reality of our own hearts. If you're asking about these disciples, if you're, if you're comparing yourself to them, you're revealing that you aren't the greatest. Let's get that out of the way right from the start. You are not the greatest. Only Jesus Christ is the greatest. And of course, we would all acknowledge that verbally. We'd all say that Jesus Christ is the greatest. But do your thoughts and words and actions reveal that Jesus Christ is the greatest? This morning, We're going to see how the apostles' thoughts and words and actions say otherwise. But even in this, they are, albeit inadvertently, pointing to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Three key points. Jesus provides the kingdom in verses 24 to 30. Jesus provides intercession in verses 31 to 34. And Jesus provides substitution in verses 35 to to 38. So first of all, Jesus provides the kingdom, verses 24 to 30. We're going to be spending most of our time here on this this first point. It's the night before Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples this one last time. And in so doing, he's revealing how the Passover doesn't just point to Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but to his deliverance of his people from slavery to sin. The Passover has become the Lord's Supper. But Jesus warned that the hand of the one who would betray him is there on the table with him. The disciples don't realize it, but Satan has already entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot to incite him to betray Jesus into the murderous hands of the religious authorities. The disciples began to question one another as to who was going to do this. And Matthew 26-22 says that, that, it's, it's, um, that they asked one after another, Is it I, Lord? But how quickly they jump from, Is it I, Lord? to, It's you. I'm better than you. Verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
The context shows that they each wanted to rule in the kingdom of God. Not only were they still expecting that Jesus in coming to Jerusalem was going to bring in an earthly kingdom, but they're each expecting to be a big shot in the kingdom. They were thinking of a worldly kingdom. They were thinking about it in a worldly way. They demonstrate shocking selfishness and ignorance in light, especially in light of the coming crucifixion of Christ. But this isn't the first time we've seen that sort of behavior from the disciples. In Luke 9, 46, immediately after Jesus told them about the crucifixion, we see that an argument arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And then it happened again in Mark 10 and Matthew 20, again as just before the triumphal entry, as Jesus tells his disciples about the crucifixion. James and John requested to sit on the left and the right hand of Jesus in glory. They had no idea how Jesus was going to suffer or what that suffering would mean. The attitude of the apostles here is a betrayal of Jesus. Yes, Judas Iscariot was going to betray Jesus, but these apostles were betraying Jesus as well. Not in the same way as Judas. It was a betrayal of what Jesus stood for and what he came to do. And we aren't that different. Of course, we have the benefit of, of 2020 hindsight. We now understand the sufferings of Christ and the meaning of his suffering far better than those apostles did that night before his crucifixion. However, I wonder what the gap is between your head knowledge and your heart knowledge. I believe the, the vast majority of us here have, have saving knowledge of the crucifixion. In other words, for, for most of us here, I believe this is not mere head knowledge. However, to the degree that you compare yourself with others like the apostles, diminishing them and exalting yourself, you do not understand the cross of Christ. You're revealing remaining misconceptions of your own sinfulness and Christ's greatness. So Jesus replies to them and to us, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. The disciples all wanted to lead, but they did not know what leadership was all about. They did not know what leadership meant, at least Christ-like leadership. They knew what worldly leadership was, was about, power and prestige. Right? Pagan kings were authoritarian. They ruled with the sword. The Roman occupation of, of Israel was a testimony of that fact right before their eyes. And when they did good, they were called benefactors. But the ones who benefited most were themselves. In Roman culture, instead of paying taxes, the wealthy contributed time and money to local municipalities. And in return, they gained power and prestige. A similar arrangement exists in law and tax law today where the, the wealthy can donate large amounts of money to so-called donor-advised funds as a charitable investment. 
They can claim a tax deduction, but they're not obligated to actually give any money. So it's win-win. But it's only win-win for them. They avoid paying taxes on that money, and then they look like philanthropists, and it doesn't cost them a dime. Here the attitude of the apostles is more like the proud scribes than the followers of Jesus Christ. In Luke 20, 46, remember Jesus warned about the scribes who love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feast, at feast because they, they love themselves, not God and not others. And in that moment, the same was true of the apostles. They wanted power and prestige. But Jesus says that the, great, the greatest among them should become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. The attitude of the apostles and all Christian leaders should be exactly the opposite of worldly leaders. Leaders need to lead, but not as the world leads. Christian leaders need to lead with the heart of a servant. Verse 27, apart from a worldly perspective, the one who is served at table is greater than the one who serves. But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus took the form of a lowly servant, and not only in washing feet, but in dying on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the greatest one for all eternity, humbled himself to serve, then clearly humility is true greatness. Jesus is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. And so you and I must humble ourselves and become servants. There are many ways you can serve others. Think specifically of the church. You can serve by, by making the time to listen and to encourage and to pray for someone else. You can serve food or, or clean up at the fellowship meal in your care group. If you aren't on the cleaning roster, you can sign up. And when you are on the, on the, on the roster to serve, do a good job as unto the Lord out of humility towards others. I think one of the best ways to serve others is behind the scenes so the only ones that know about it are you and the Lord. That's going to help to keep your motives in check. Do you see selfishness and a lack of service in your life? Do you get upset when you serve and others don't? When you help others, whether it's by by counseling them from the word or, or by helping them practically, do you condescendingly think, I hope that person's thankful for my efforts here. If you see any of these things in your life, you need to go to God in repentance, asking him to change your life, to change your thinking, and then your life will change. If you're not serving from genuine humility, if you're not thinking and serving that person because you value them above yourself, it's not the kind of service that Jesus is talking about here. 
Brothers and sisters, go to God in repentance, confessing it to God, confessing your lack of service, your lack of humility to God. and He will change you. He will do that work in your life for his glory, for your good, and for the building of the church. Stop worrying about your own status and focus instead on the needs of others. Brothers and sisters, true greatness is within the grasp of each one of us. You don't have to reach up to be great. You have to reach down. And do so by God's grace, feeling like you're reaching up. You can't be thinking, well, that's pretty humble of me. Humility feels genuinely privileged and genuinely blessed to be able to serve another person. And in this, we have the perfect example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. I trust you know this passage well. Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but on, on, also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He became obedient. Sorry, and he, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is self-explanatory. Paul is saying that we must follow Christ's example of humility. And it's impossible for an unbeliever to have the mind of Christ. But if you are a Christian, you have this mind of Christ already because the Holy Spirit indwells you. You can count others as greater than yourself because the greatest one of all eternity did that for you. Matthew 20, 27 and 28. And whosoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the words of, of commentator William Lane, the reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So greatness in God's eyes means exactly the opposite of what the world calls great. In your family, do you see yourself as one who is there to serve? When you come to church on Sunday, do you see yourself as one who is here to serve? May God empower us to, to enable us to, to outdo one another in showing honor. To still see ourselves as being amongst the lowest in service. Again, because we need to compare ourselves with the service of Jesus Christ. But now, after revealing to the apostles their, their deficit and humility, 
Shockingly, to our sensibilities, in verse 28, the Lord encourages them. He encourages them. He tells them that they have stayed with him in his trials. For all of their faults, they had stuck with Jesus for now. They'd stayed with him in his trials so far. Now, they won't stick with him in his deepest trials. We're going to see in the very next passage. But Jesus still commends them, saying, You have stuck with me in my trials. He knows that they're going to repent. He's going to enable them to repent. But it's true that the disciples have been with Jesus as, they, as he suffered in ministry. And they're about to suffer far more as they watch their Lord suffer on the cross. They're going to flee, but they're going to come back. All of them, that is, except for one. They will follow in Christ's footsteps. Many of them will be arrested and beaten and killed for following Jesus. They didn't follow perfectly, but they still followed. Can, can you say with Peter as he repented and was restored, Lord, you know that I love you? Can you say that with Peter? Jesus wants to encourage the disciples with a taste of what's coming, that they will actually have power and prestige in the kingdom of God, but it's not going to be anything like they expected. It's going to be infinitely better than they expected. Jesus says he's actually assigning them a kingdom just as the Father has assigned him a kingdom. They were sitting around, these, these men were sitting around the, the first Lord's table. And they will sit around the Lord's table in the consummated kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, so will we. This is mind-blowing. Some of what Jesus is saying here is, is specifically applicable to the disciples, but there's an application for us here as well. On that day, you will see the inestimable worth of Christ. And you will also be exalted far beyond your wildest imagination. You will be glorified in the presence of the glory of God. The apostles are going to, to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Judging here refers to ruling. There's a present and a, and a future sense to this. The, the apostles would exercise authority in the, in the fledgling church, but their authority would not, will not be consummated until the consummation of the kingdom of God at the end. And on that day, there will be no more sinful nature to contend with. In the presence of the glory of Christ, there will be no more arguing about who is the greatest. Brothers and sisters, this is grace. We won't have the same authority as the apostles, but we will be glorified and we will share in the glory of the kingdom in the presence of Jesus Christ. As ungreat as you and I are, God has great things in store for us. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 You aren't great, but Jesus Christ is. And he shows his greatness in providing the kingdom. Next, 
Jesus provides intercession. Verses 31 to 34. Jesus now shifts to a warning. He solemnly addresses Peter by his old name, repeating it for emphasis. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus is addressing Peter directly, but the Greek here conveys that the you is actually plural. There's probably a footnote about that in your Bible. Jesus is addressing Peter, but, but all of the disciples are in danger. Satan has already taken Judas down, and now he's after the other disciples as well, especially Peter, the leader of the disciples. Satan desires to sift them like wheat. Now in that culture, wheat would be, would be put in a screen and shake it violently until the, the wheat and the chaff were, were separated. The, the head was, was taken apart. Satan is, is not interested in removing chaff. He's only interested in the shaking violently part. He wants to take your head apart. It's reminiscent of Job 1 and 2 where, where Satan asks permission from God to attack Job. And in one day, Job loses his property, his children, and his health. Satan sifted Job like wheat, and he wants to sift you too. Satan is a powerful enemy. But like with Job, Satan can only go as far as the end of his leash. Jesus tells Peter that, that he has interceded for him so that Peter's faith would not fail. Now the pronoun is back to the singular, you. Peter's faith is specifically in view. Jesus is saying that he is, he is interceding for him. And Jesus promises Peter that, that he will turn again. Jesus is is offering Peter reconciliation before Peter's even sinned. He's extending his gracious hand to Peter. Now, now this word, um, turning again, is, is often associated with repentance. Peter will stumble, and he was going to stumble horribly, but he's going to repent because Jesus Christ is interceding for him. Jesus intercedes for all of the apostles. He's interceding for you as well. Right now and always, Jesus intercedes for you before the throne of God. Romans 8, 34. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Hebrews 7, 25. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you as well. Romans 8, 26. The whole Trinity is involved in the preservation of your faith. Brian Hedges, in, in his book, Christ formed in you, which the, the men have, have been studying together, says that my circumstances are sifted through the fingers of a wise and loving father. Satan might desire to sift you, and he might even have some license in your life. But nothing comes to you but that which has been sifted through the hands of your loving heavenly father. Nothing can happen to you unless God allows it. And God will not allow anything into your life that he will not use for your good and for his glory. In fact, God is going to redeem Peter's trial and use it for his sanctification and for the building up of the apostles. Jesus tells Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter knows what it's like 
to sin and to be restored. And so he is uniquely equipped in the sense, well, not uniquely, because it's all of us. He's well equipped to help others. He has been through a profound trial and has experienced the Lord's comfort, and so he's well equipped to comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. Have you been through a trial? Are you going through a trial right now? Are you experiencing the Lord's supernatural comfort in the midst of that trial. Seek comfort from God. He will provide it. And then He will use it in your life so that you offer to others the comfort, not your comfort. You give to others the comfort that you receive, the comfort that comes from God. Become an instrument in God's hands to comfort others. Peter is not great, but God is going to forgive him and is still going to do great things through him. The person who has been humbled by his or her own sin can humbly go to another brother or sister who is caught in sin and to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1 As those who are not great and know that they are not great, Our job isn't to confront or to call out, but to humbly come alongside and restore. As one who has been restored by God. And if you're a Christian, you have been restored by God. Listen to C.J. Mahaney. Only those who are humble can consistently identify evidences of grace in others who need adjustment. This is something the proud and the self-righteous are incapable of. Do those around you, especially in your family and your church family, do they hear more criticism from you? Or do they hear more encouragement from you? If you want to have a voice to be able to help others, you'll be far more effective in their lives if you're aware that you humbly see yourself as a sinner in need of grace and that you value them and that you are conscious of the way God is at work in their lives. So that when you go to talk to somebody about your sin, it's, it's not a position of let me tell you, but lovingly come along, coming alongside as a fellow sinner in need of grace. That person will know as you've made the effort to, to encourage them and to, to identify evidences of grace in their life. They're going to they're know that you love them and that you're for them and that you have hope for their growth in Christ-likeness because you've seen it before. But Peter isn't there yet. I wonder if we are. Peter still thinks he's great. He replies to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, on one level, Peter gets it. On one level, Peter 
finally understands that Jesus is actually going to suffer. However, he underestimates the strength of his enemy and overestimates his own strength. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. And he's no, he knows you better than you know you as well. This past week in our, in our family devotions, we were reading from Joel Beakey's family worship guide on Psalm 140. And, and he, he was talking about how, Joel Beakey was talking about how, how we need to consciously go to, to God praying for protection from evil and specifically from the evil one. And he asked the question, what does it reveal about you if you don't do that? If you do not, on a regular basis, go to God conscious of your own weakness and conscious of your need of Christ and conscious of the, the strength of the enemy who wants to destroy you, then you are on very dangerous ground. You are being self-confident, just like Peter. First Corinthians 10, 12. Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. By God's grace, be conscious of your need of grace. Be conscious of your dependence on the Lord. If you do stand, it will not be in your own strength. It will not be by your bravado. You, if you stand, it will only be because of Christ. That's why Jesus says to pray in the, in the model prayer. To pray daily. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Make this a part of your regular pattern of prayer. Jesus calls Satan, the, the prince of this world, a, a murderer and the father of lies. Peter warned us that Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul warned us that sa Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. Satan is working tirelessly against Christ and his church, sowing discord, sowing false doctrine, and inciting persecution. He is plucking the seeds of the gospel from unsuspecting sinners and tempting believers and then accusing them for the very sins that he has tempted them to do. The world is a snare. The flesh is a traitor. But the devil manipulates both. Satan may not be omnipotent, but he is far stronger than you and far more ruthless than you understand. He may not be omnipresent, but he has a host of demons to do his bidding. He may not be omniscient, but he knows sinful human nature. He knows your sinful human nature. He's been at this for thousands of years to hone his craft. The battle goes all the way back to the garden when the serpent tempted Eve to eat the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in, in his judgment of the serpent, the Lord God told the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So here in this passage, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, is about to crush the serpent's head and he is about to have his heel bruised. But he wins the victory over Satan and he wins that victory for us. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.
Peter will follow Jesus to prison and to death, but only after he falls and is restored. Jesus prophesies, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. He, he even, even curses Jesus in his denial of Jesus. Jesus prophesies Peter's threefold denial, very specifically specifying the exact number of denials and the exact time frame. This is more than human knowledge. Jesus is demonstrating his supernatural knowledge and the fact he's fully cognizant of all that is about to take place. Peter's denial is going to come very soon, within a few short hours. Jesus and the disciples are about to leave the Last Supper and go to Gethsemane. Peter is going to demonstrate his lack of greatness, but Jesus is going to show his greatness in providing intercession. You aren't great either. But Jesus shows his greatness by interceding for you. And finally, and more briefly, Jesus provides substitution, verses 35 to 38. Jesus reminds the apostles of God's provision for the 12 from Luke 9.3 and and for the 72 from Luke 10, 3, and 4, where they were told not to take anything for their journey because God would provide for them everything that they needed. And they recognized that they needed nothing. They lacked nothing because God provided everything that they needed. But Jesus says here, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Jesus is saying here that there's, there's a new season coming. There's grave danger ahead. They're going to experience trials and opposition unlike anything that they have ever experienced before. But God is going to provide for them. Still going to provide for them. But Jesus is warning the disciples that they need to prepare. They need to prepare themselves for what's coming. Those who follow Jesus had better be prepared to be treated like Jesus was treated. Now there's some uncertainty, uncertainty here about, about Jesus telling them to, to sell their cloak and to purchase a sword. Most of the commentators that I read suggested that the, the sword is figurative. And that when they produce two swords down in verse 38 and Jesus says, it is enough, that, that Jesus is saying, enough of this talk about swords. Now, in my opinion, Jesus, Jesus here is, is talking about literally purchasing the sword. Now, now, this is not a strong opinion. Don't come and debate me after the service. Because admittedly, most of my evidence of this is circumstantial. But let's just go through it. First, the, the money bag and the knapsack are literal. And so that I believe that points to the sword being literal. Second, it was, it was very common in that culture to carry a sword because of the significant risk of robbery. And Jesus is never, never does forbid self-defense if you're attacked. In that, in that sense. Third, some of the disciples were already carrying swords. Clearly, Jesus would have known about it. It hasn't stopped them previously. Fourth, just a few verses later, they're still going to have the sword. But they're going to use the sword to attack their enemies. I think this is the key point. 
In verse 49, when the soldiers and the religious authorities come to arrest Jesus, they ask, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus exclaims, no more of this. And he heals the man's ear. Malchus was servant of the high priest. He hated Jesus. He wanted Jesus to die, but Jesus healed him. The disciples, and especially Peter, did not understand. One commentator says the disciples misunderstand his warning, noting that they're willing to fight for Jesus. The disciples are ready for war. Jesus is ready for the cross. Even if the disciples were to carry swords, the sword pointed to being ready and self-sufficient, not being, not taking out vengeance or taking the kingdom of God by force. Do not advance the kingdom of God through fleshly means. The apostles entirely understood the point of having a sword. They entirely misunderstood what it means to advance the kingdom of God. They were clearly not great. And neither are we. Because far too easily, we try to achieve spiritual ends through fleshly means. I have to memorize and preach to myself, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if I, get angry, if I find myself getting angry at somebody else's sin, I'm revealing my sin. I've got enough to deal with. I'm in no position to be able to deal with them if I'm angry in a fleshly way. Peter and the apostles and we are not good. But Jesus says in verse 37 that he was viewed as not good. He became, in a sense, not good. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. First of all, if Jesus is rejected, is rejected as a sinner by the world, that his followers will be rejected in the same way. And so the followers of Jesus had better be prepared for rejection, to deal with it in a spiritual way instead of in a fleshly way. But there's more, more going on here than that. Jesus is saying that God's plan must come to pass. Fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus Christ is an absolute necessity. And now some here suggest that Jesus is speaking prophetically about being crucified between two thieves. Now that's possible, but I, I think the implications are actually far greater. Because Jesus is being condemned as a sinner. The scripture that Jesus is quoting here is Isaiah 53, 12. I'll read the whole verse. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide his spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death. He died in the place of of sinners, condemned as guilty, not just by men, but by God himself.
Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ bore the wrath of Almighty God for sinful men and women, people like you and me. Jesus was counted to be a sinner so that sinners could be counted righteous. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have had the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account. What on earth are we doing quibbling about who is the greatest? We have been credited with the greatness of Jesus Christ. We have no greatness of our own, but we have all the greatness there is in Jesus Christ. Jesus became nothing so that in him we can have everything. The great one, greatest one of all eternity surrendered his greatness to make us great before him. The apostles and we have a lot to learn. But even still, the greatness of Jesus Christ is enough for our salvation. Jesus and the apostles are about to leave the upper room and to head to the Mount of Olives, back to, the, to Gethsemane, where they will encounter Judas. And Judas will betray Jesus, but in a sense, they have all betrayed Jesus. They jostle for position. They're self-reliant. They try to advance the kingdom of God through fleshly means. They all think they're great, but none of them is great. And neither are you, and neither is neither am I. But in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are great. Listen to C.J. Mahaney. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's the beginning and the end of humility. Understanding who you are and understanding who God is. And understanding who you are in Christ. Only Jesus Christ is great, and only those who come to him in repentance and faith will be great. Only those who come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith will enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the greatness of Christ. God the Son in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. By your Spirit, give us spiritual eyes to see the greatness of Christ. To see ourselves and our sin, what we would be apart from Christ. But help us to see ourselves and those around us who are in Christ as great because of Christ. That we might truly esteem one another better than ourselves, seeing ourselves in humility because we see Christ in his glory. Pray this in his precious name. Amen.